We're not trying to talk about politics for the sake of talking about politics, and in this series is not to get into who we should vote for and which candidate is best and all that crazy stuff. But we want to look at five biblical principles that we can remember during this time of, well, crazy is a good word. It's a unique election year, and there are a lot of things going on in our culture, a lot of shifts with regards to morals and principles that that you would have never have guessed would be changing uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. But they are changing, and the Christian faith is becoming uh, more and more unpopular in our culture. And the Bible speaks to how we as Christians should live in our culture. And so last week, principle number one we looked at was God is in control. No matter how, thing, how crazy things get, uh, what, what person will assume the presidency this upcoming year we need to remember that God is in control, and we looked at Romans 13. This week, our second principle that we're going to look at is we should be involved. Principle number two is we should be involved. The Christian faith has completely changed this world. From the time of Jesus' arrival onto the scene and the birth of Christianity, the world has utterly been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by His people going forth into the world. I was talking to some missionaries who were a part of my wife and I's training 15 or so years ago when we were going to school. And this couple had been in Papua New Guinea. And they had taken the gospel to a tribal group in the middle of the jungle. They had never, ever, ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, they'd had very few, very little contact with outsiders. No one had ever, from the outside, no one had ever learned their language. No one had ever been in contact with them. And, and, and most importantly, no one had ever shared Christ with them. And so this missionary family, along with a couple others, moved in. They began to just get to know the people, their culture, their language. They were the first foreigners ever to learn this tribal language. And as they began to understand the culture, they realized that there were a lot of practice born out of their superstition and their fear that, that, that were, were just, just flat out evil and sinful things that were going on. But they realized that first and foremost, these, these tribal people needed to hear the gospel. If there was going to be ultimately any transformation of culture, any change in their lives, they needed to meet Jesus. And so that's what they did. Once they knew enough of the language, they began to tra- translate some scripture portions and they, be- they began to teach God's word. They began in Genesis with who God is and began to build on the foundations that are laid in the first books of the Bible. And slowly they began to build and work towards the coming of the Redeemer, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the person of Christ. And as they presented the gospel of Jesus to these people, one by one, uh, men and women came forward to trust Christ, and, and it, literally, in every sense of the word, a revival broke out among this small tribal group to the point where after, after a number of months and, and just a few short years, the majority of this people group had become Christians and trusted in Christ as their Savior. And before they had gotten saved, one of the, the practices that the group participated in, that the missionaries struggled with so mightily was that they believed that when a woman got pregnant with twins, when, when, when the birth took place and more than one child lived through the, the, the delivery, that uh, they believed it was a curse on the family, 
They believed that one of the twins was an evil spirit, and it would be morally wrong in their culture to allow both of those children to live. And so what they would do then is take one of those twins and march out with that baby into the jungle, and they would set it down at the base of a tree somewhere and walk away. And that child would be left to the elements and the wild animals because they thought to to let both of those children live would bring a curse on their family and on the tribal group. And as I was talking to this missionary, he said it was such a heartbreaking thing to see when we first moved in and not be able to explain why it was wrong, but know that this, this terrible thing was taking place. And he said, you know, when 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 the people begin to get saved and trust in Christ. Their lives begin to change. In those aspects of their culture that were bound up in superstition and fear of, of gods and, and, and evil spirits begin to be rooted out. And he said, do you want to know what one of the most exciting things is about that tribe today? One of the most exciting fruits of the gospel going in to their community. He said, today there are adult twins alive. The gospel went forth, and it didn't just change individuals, but it changed the culture. It caused them to see that this was not God's will for them, that there was, this child wasn't a demon, this child was a gift from God, both of them. The gospel should transform our hearts. But as the gospel transforms the hearts of individuals, it should also transform the culture around those individuals if we're letting it have its work. And as Jesus speaks here in Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon. And in verse 13... He tells the crowd this, you, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Some Christians believe that it's our job simply to share the gospel, and that's it. That is, as far as us being engaged in the world around us, listen, we just need to build relationships only to the point where. We can tell people about Jesus and then we retreat. So we don't want to be tainted. We don't want to be affected by the bad people around us. And so we, we, kind of, we kind of throw Jesus out there and then run back. And I don't know if you've met people like that or maybe you found yourself kind of caught up in that thinking. But Jesus calls us to more than that. He calls us to be salt and to be light. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. And certainly... Individuals need to trust Christ, but as, as people come to know Him around us, 
the impact is, is like a ripple effect, and it goes out further and further. God's grace changes people, and as a result, it changes the things around them. Families are renewed. Schools are rejuvenated. Businesses reorient their mission and their purpose. What's more, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes heart, and it can change the course of government. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He wanted Christians to pay careful attention, especially to what was happening in the church and how they could do good to one another. But he said, look beyond that even. Do good to everyone. Look how you can touch people's lives in the community around you. God does not call us to withdraw from the culture and become modern-day monks. God cares about our spiritual life, but He also cares that people have food and water and jobs and housing and, and, and safe places to live. And the gospel should transform the way that we think about those social issues. James reminds us in James chapter 2, kind of in a, well, in James's blunt way of saying things, he says, if a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? He says, so also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. If someone comes to your door and you can hear their stomach growling, they're gaunt, they're hungry, they're thirsty, and you have a lavish feast laid out on your dinner table, and you say, hey, it's good to see you. Thanks for stopping by. Hope everything's all right. I hope you have a great day and you have a great lunch. I'm about ready to go eat mine. And you do nothing to care for their, their real, genuine, physical needs, but send them off on their way. He says, your faith is nothing. Your faith is worthless. It's, it's not helping them in any way, shape, or form. Take care of their physical needs. Help, help them out. Sometimes we Christians... Forget that when God commands us to love our neighbors, He means to love them completely. It means that we'll care about laws to protect unborn children. We'll care about policies that defend marriages and families. If we truly love our neighbors, we'll be naturally concerned about corrupt moral influences that could creep into schools or unsafe neighborhoods. Loving our neighbors means more than just telling them about Jesus. It doesn't mean less than that. We must tell them about Jesus, but we must also be the hands and feet of Jesus to care for their needs. So as Christians, we have the unique opportunity to have an influence on society. And Christianity has a long history of that. You don't have to spend much time in the history books to see that it's Christians who have spearheaded hospitals. Uh, all but one of the, the first 100 and... Uh, I didn't write the number down. I think it's 100... Out of the first 123 universities that began in the United States, all but one of them were Christian universities. Christians have spearheaded education, medicine, literacy, and, and all kinds of social initiatives throughout history. And that is because... 
many of the first Christians realized that the gospel doesn't just change individuals. The gospel should change communities as those individuals come to Christ. Christ and his church have had enormous influence. And if only we were sold out for Christ to the point where our commitment would cause us to step beyond where we're currently at to see ways in which we could change the culture around us. So when you come back to these verses here, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Both of these things, salt and light, they change their environment. They change and affect the things around them. I love dishes of food that are full of flavor, and I like spicy things. I like lively food. When I have a bland dish, I I quick grab for for something, sprinkle on it, pour on it, salt, pepper, whatever I can find, to liven it up a little bit, affect the taste and the flavor. Salt affects its environment. I have at least one kid who I, I have a couple kids we have to grab the salt shaker from. They're like, everything, ah, just everything gets lots of, you can can overdo it with salt. But Jesus' point is, as Christians, we need need to, to be, we need to be changing the environment around us. We need to affect what goes on in our culture by the way that we live. We, we need to be salt. We need to be light. Light is so absolutely important to how we live. When you, uh, you know, we, we, have a, we have a four-year-old who does, who does a, a pretty good job of sleeping through the night, but every now and then we'll hear that call. And for whatever reason, it tends to be my name um, that is beckoned. And so... I stumble out of bed, and we don't have a nightlight in the hallway, so I'm like feeling my way around, and inevitably, there is a misplaced Lego. Um, I do not know why terrorists do not use Legos, uh, because they are the most uh, devious weapon ever conceived, and, and absolutely crippling to a bare foot. Um, it would make so much sense for us to have a nightlight in the hallway. It would help out immensely. Years we've been doing this, and I still don't have a nightlight in the hallway. But boy, when I finally find the hall light switch anyways and can see where I'm going, it makes all the difference. It completely changes the environment. No longer am I smashing into walls and tripping over toys, but I can find my way where I need to go. And as Christians, we have the chance to be that in the world around us, to affect the environment around us by being salt and light. Uh, One writer noted that salt also goes beyond adding flavor, but salt is a preservative. He says, like salt in in putrefying meat, Christians are to hinder social decay. Like light in prevailing darkness, Christians are to illumine society and show it a better way. It's very important to grasp these two stages in the teaching of Jesus. Most Christians accept that there's a distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian, between the church and the world. We, we know that. But God's new society, the church, is different from the old society as salt is from rotting meat and as light from darkness. There are too many people who stop there, though. Too many people whose whole preoccupation is with survival, maintaining a distinction. I don't know if you've been a part of a, a, a Christian community like that, but where The number one goal is to keep yourself insulated from the evil world around you. You ever been in a a Christian community like that? 
You, 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 don't, you don't see any movies. You, you try to avoid talking to non-Christians. You try to have only Christian friends. You want to try to, as best you possibly can to live in a bubble, to live insulated from the effects of the world. The problem is, is that, yeah, maybe you're not being affected by the world, but you're also not affecting the world, which is what God has called us to do. We need to be more than merely survivors. Salt and light are not just to be a bit different from their environment. They're to have a powerful influence on their environment. The salt is to be rubbed into the meat in order to stop the rot. The light is to shine in the darkness. It is to be set upon a lampstand, the passage says. It is to give light to the environment. That is an influence on the environment quite different from mere survival. The problem is... When you begin to go out and be a light, you realize that the world around you, the people that you might encounter, are maybe not always squeaky clean. <laughs> they, they may not have everything together. If you and I were honest, we'd realize that we don't have everything together either, but when, it can be a stark contrast when you start rubbing shoulders with, with people who are struggling with addictions. With, with those who maybe have uh, different, I don't want to say it, different ideas about bodily hygiene, maybe lifestyle choices that we wouldn't agree with or that are outright sinful. See, when you begin to be salt and light, you re, you, you're reminded that you're stepping out into darkness. And things can get messy when you go to bring the light in a dark place. But God has not called us to stand on the sidelines. God has not called us to be people who merely survive, who play it safe, but as people who get involved. Yesterday, we had a family reunion down south of Kalamazoo. And I, I love this family reunion because these are cousins I only get to see about once a year. And we just, it's one of those reunions when you see them, you just, you just pick up right where you left off uh, from the previous September. And, and it's just a great time of laughter and, and fun and games and lots and lots of food. Oh, my word, the venison tenderloin yesterday. Mm, I can still taste it. Um, we used to, back when we were younger and a bit more foolish, we used to throw in a traditional uh, tackle football game. Um, that, it, that started when I was probably in my teens and went up into my early, mid-twenties. The year it ended, um, I remember that there were one or two hits where everybody went, huh? and we literally thought that maybe that person they had gotten hit was dead. Like, they got hit so hard, and we realized, holy cow, we are grown adults, not playing with any pads. Um, we are now fathering children. We have mortgages and jobs and, like, grown-up things to do. Maybe we should stop. <laughs> and the voice of reason was the oldest cousin who was in his 30s, and he's like, uh, my wife said I need to stop. <laughs> And so we, we put the football game on hiatus and still get together. But out trots, you know, our kids are starting now and to get in their teen years. Uh, the oldest cousin has a college-age kid. And one of, the, one of the kids trots out and is like, let's play a football game. 
We're like, yeah, like the old times, let's play a football game. So we all get out of our chairs, put our food plates down, and we get out on the field. Now, we all agreed, we're older and wiser now, we're going to play two-hand touch, because we realized the, the folly of our ways, and so we're playing two-hand touch. Um, two-hand touch is still rough when you're playing with a bunch of adult men, and um, I, about two-thirds of the way through the game, I told Elisa, I said, I think I made a mistake. I may need to text Jeff and see if he's got a sermon that he could preach tomorrow, because I'm not sure if I can make it up these three steps. Um, we all got through unscathed, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And by the end of the game, I had mud stains. I was sweating like crazy. And I was looking on the sidelines. I'm looking, man, all these people that were taking pictures and sitting in the lawn chairs and, and I thought, man, maybe they were the smart people. Maybe they were the wise ones. And I looked at how, how messy and filthy I was, and I thought, you know, it's a little bit like what we're talking about today. If you're going to get in the game, you're, you're going to get roughed up a little bit. I got some sore muscles. I got some dirty clothes. I was a little bit smelly afterwards. And, and you know, when you decide to step out in faith and say, you know what, God, I'm going to get engaged in this world around me, it's not going to be easy. It was way easier to stand on the sidelines and make fun of the old guys making a fool of themselves. A little bit more difficult to get in the game. And God has called each and every one of us as Christians to get in the game, to get our hands dirty, to be willing to get down with people who are struggling, who are hurting, who are addicted, who are in sin, who are the castaways of our culture and our society, people who, who don't know how to be dads and moms. Kids who, who don't know how to treat adults or, or do schoolwork at school because they don't have any help at home. You know, when you sit down and really get involved in the life of someone who is struggling, who is hurting, who needs Christ, when you get in the game, you may end up a little bit dirty, you may end up hobbling, it may be hard, but God has called us to be salt and light. And there are ways that we can do that without being uh, uh, spiritually affected, without, without living like the world. We can engage the world without living like the world. Christianity has impacted the world in so many positive ways. And if we are going to impact our community, Claire... Harrison, Farwell, Clare County, and beyond. We're going to have to get in the game. We can't stay silent or withdraw. We need to be faithful. And so I want to take just the last few minutes here and talk about what are some ways we can be salt and light. What does that look like for us if we say, okay, I get it, Pastor. I need to be salt. I need to be light. I need to get in the game. I need to not stand on the sidelines, withdraw. How can I be salt and how can I be light? The first thing that all of us can do, every single person in this room can do this. We need to remember the power of prayer. We need to remember the power of prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul told his spiritual son in the faith, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all all people, for kings 
and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified life in every way. Paul urges Timothy to remember to pray for everybody. There is no one who you should exclude from your prayer list because you don't like them or you don't agree with them or they frustrate you or they annoy you or they're flat out your enemy. They should be at the top of your list. And he says, I want you to pray for all people. And in case, in case Timothy thinks like maybe many of us do, he said, and that means kings and all who are in high positions. He says, Timothy, I want you praying for everybody, and that includes politicians. Okay. This includes people that you don't agree with. This doesn't mean you just pray for, for those who are in authority who, who are maybe making laws that you agree with, ones who are living moral lives, ones who are from a certain political party. He says, I want you praying for them all. You know what, as we think about God's Word going forth, about making an impact in our community, our culture, our government, we need to start with prayer. We need to go before God on behalf of our nation, on behalf of our, our president, on behalf of our other political leaders, and ask them, ask God to help them. Secondly, not only do we need to remember the power of prayer, but we need to remember the power of personal example. These next couple are going to start, are going to, are going to show us we can start small in our, our little sphere of influence and then we can begin to build out. And the first thing is, is that, that we all, we all have the opportunity to influence people around us. Every single one of us. All of us have some sort of a family of some kind. Maybe you've got a family living under your roof. You've got your church family. You've got some close friends. But it begins to expand beyond that. People you work with. Those you go to school with, the moms and the dads you stand out uh, waiting for your kids to get out of school with, people at your family reunions. We all have a sphere of influence. Some of it's, it's small. Some of us have a larger sphere of influence. And we have the opportunity to make an impact. When that neighbor kid is, is over at our house for dinner and he sees your family bowing in prayer before a meal... Don't think that he doesn't notice that when he sees how you and your spouse interact with each other, how you treat your children. You are all telling him something about Jesus. Your coworkers, when they, they know you've got a chance to fudge some numbers a little bit, to cut a few corners here and there, and they see the way that you live a life of integrity, you are saying something about Jesus. We all have a sphere of influence, and we need to remember that God has called us, first and foremost, to impact that group around us. And we can do it, of course, through our words. We must say something about Jesus, but our lives speak volumes. Remember the power of personal example. Then, to take it a little farther, we think about the power of cultural, power of cultural engagement. First of all, you've got your, 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 your small group, your area, your small area, 
that you're naturally rubbing shoulders with. But here now, you're choosing to take a step beyond that and say, okay, I'm going out now. I'm going to go be salt and light somewhere. I'm going to volunteer at a hospital. I'm going to go to a nursing home and sit and, and read stories to someone who doesn't have any family visit them. I'm going to go up the road to Hope and Harrison. I'm going to counsel young, unwed, pregnant mothers about how to be a mom and why it's important to choose life. I'm going to get involved with Love, Inc. and help drive elderly shut-ins to doctor's appointments. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get connected. I'm going to find ways to be the hands and feet of Christ. I'm going to go volunteer in, in my kid's class at school and just, just sit down with somebody and, and, and listen to them read and, and show this, this kid that he may not have a parent at home who cares to listen to him read, but there's someone right here right now who wants to. This involves us giving up our time, our energy, sometimes our finances, to look for ways to engage the world around us. This is a specific action step. This is not waiting for people to come to us, but this is us stepping out and going to them, which is what Jesus calls us to do in the Great Commission. Cultural engagement, looking for ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Not, not choosing people who are like you or who agree with you or have it all together, but looking for those who might have different political and moral views, who have different lifestyle views, who are struggling and hurting and don't have it together and choosing to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their life. Number four, as we think about expanding and even a step further and in, in really getting into our theme in, in, in this sermon series, we need to remember the power of political influence. As we think beyond then, impacting our own neighborhood and realizing that, that sometimes it takes more than that to affect the, the laws and the ordinances that are put into place in our culture that directly affect us and our lives and our moral uh, choices, we need to remember that, that God has put us in a, in a nation as a democracy, where we can have influence in the government. We, can, we actually have a voice to speak out. Of course, by voting, we can get involved. That's important to do. There's other outlets for you to speak your voice and be heard on important issues. Don't stay silent. If God has is, is, is called us to be salt and light, we need to remember that that goes beyond just our family, beyond just our community, in being able to be a testimony and influence in the government. You see, when, uh, you remember a man by the name of Daniel in the Old Testament, a very well-known Bible character. He was, he was brought into captivity along with many of his Jewish brothers and sisters and brought into Babylon. He could have flown under the radar. He could have stayed in the shadows. He could have not spoken up. He could have kept quiet, but he realized that God had put him in a unique place for this time. And so God allowed him to be able to be elevated to a place as a, as a political advisor. And he was an important man in the country. Some, some scholars believe that maybe he was even like the king's number two man. And we see him serving under several different kings in, 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 his, in the course of his years in, in the Babylonian captivity. One of those kings was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud and self-centered man. His world revolved around him. And one day, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and Nebuchadnezzar knew it meant something, but he was baffled as to what this dream meant. And so he sat down with Daniel, and Dan, he knew that Daniel had been given a gift by God to understand these things. And God revealed to Daniel that this was not a good dream. These were not glad tidings 
for Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel was like, ah, you probably don't want to hear about this. Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah, tell me, I, fill me in. What's going on? He's like, no, really, you, this is a, this is the, the interpretation here is something that you would wish on your enemies. This is not, this is not good news. And so he proceeded to tell Nebuchadnezzar that God was going to humble him. God was going to abase Nebuchadnezzar for his pride and his arrogance. And, and was going to, and you remember what happened? He, he ended up living like an animal for several years out in the wilderness. Grew his hair long and just was like a savage. Really went insane for a number of years as a punishment from God for his actions. Before it happened, after, after Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation... Daniel pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar. He spoke up. Even though he could have stayed quiet, he could have realized this is a powerful king. Maybe I just better keep my mouth shut. He pleaded with him, and he said this in Daniel 4.27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps, perhaps, be a lengthening to your prosperity. You realize what Daniel did? He had the courage to step out and speak to the king and say, listen, you need to pay attention here. God God wants you to humble yourself. God wants you to change, to be a different person. Now, you know what? The king didn't listen to him. And the king ended up, the prophecy ended up coming true and the king was punished. Rather than staying quiet and staying silent, Daniel used his influence to attempt to implore the king. Esther's situation was very similar. Just like her uncle Mordecai said, who knows if God didn't put you here for such a time as this. And Esther was willing to speak out. In that situation, the king did listen. And as a result, it saved millions of Jewish people from destruction because she chose to to speak up. What issue is God challenging you to speak up? What, What government official is God calling you to write a letter to today, type an email to about a particular burden that's on your heart. Remember the power of political influence. And then finally, for some of us, we need to remember the power of serving in office. We need to remember the power of serving in office. I don't believe that God calls everyone to serve in a political office, just like I don't believe everyone, God calls everyone to be a foreign missionary overseas in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. But God does call some. There may be someone sitting here who's had, who's, who maybe previously uh, just had some interests, some inklings, some strong opinions about some political issues, but maybe God is urging you to get more involved and use your gifts to influence our community, our state, our nation for good. There was one man who changed Great Britain and eventually the world. He was born on August 24th, 1759. His parents were very wealthy. His father died when he was nine and left him a great deal of money. And he kind of wandered his way through school, went off to college, frittered away his time there. But by the time he was 21 decided that he would run for parliament, had political aspirations, and he used some of his inheritance money to launch a campaign 
In fact, by in, in, in modern-day financial terms, he spent about a half a million dollars on his campaign, and he won. He wasn't simply a wealthy playboy, though. The prime minister at the time called him the most eloquent man he knew. When this man was 25, he encountered an old schoolmaster who began to talk to him about Jesus Christ. This man had 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 some religious upbringing. His family went to church some. He had an aunt who would take him periodically, but it had never been personal to him. And after a number of months of conversations with this former schoolmaster, God powerfully converted him to Christ, and he began to be passionate about the things of God while in Parliament. And he began to wonder if maybe he should leave the political world to go into full-time ministry. And so he decided to go visit the old pastor that his aunt would sometimes take him to. This pastor's name was John Newton, a former slave ship captain who would become known as the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And he sat down with Newton and said, what should I do? I'm passionate about about the things of God and my newfound Christian faith, but I'm also passionate about politics and, and, and serving here in government. And John Newton's advice to him changed the world. Newton encouraged him to stick with politics. Newton wrote him a couple months later and said, it's hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of His church and the good of the nation. And so it was that young William Wilberforce began a battle against the African slave trade that would last him the next 46 years of his life. A few months later, he wrote in his diary, God Almighty has placed before me two great objects, the suppression of slave trade and the reformation of morals. Soon after Christmas of 1787, a few days before the Parliament would take its holiday recess, Wilberforce gave notice to the House of Commons that early in the new session, he would bring about a bill for the abolition of the slave trade. However, it would be 20 years before such a bill would be passed. The more he had studied the matter... The more he heard of the atrocities, the more resolved he became. In May of 1789, he spoke to the house about how he came, how he came to this conviction. He said, I confess to you, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear to my own mind that I was completely decided for the cause of abolition. Let the consequences be what they would, I would from this time be determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And so, for years and years, he fought to free slaves, he sought to see the slave trade suppressed, and bill after bill after bill was defeated, yet he stood resolute against the tremendous opposition of the slave traders and those who realized the economic ramifications of such a decision, he continued to forge ahead. Despite threats against his life, he continued to fight. 
Finally, in 1807, 20 years after he first began, at 4 a.m., February 24th, he saw the first stage of his passion become a reality. At one point, the house rose almost to a man and turned towards Wilberforce in a burst of cheers above the roar, the sound of hear, hear, and hurrahs echoed while he sat simply with his head bowed and tears streaming down his face. The vote was 283 to 16, and a couple days later, the royal assent was declared. One of his friends said that Wilberforce immediately gave all the glory to God. But even after 20 years, the battle was still not over, for, for the slave trade was illegal, but slavery was not. You couldn't, you couldn't go to Africa and kidnap them anymore, but you could still possess a slave. And so he continued to fight and fight and fight for the absolute eradication of slavery in Great Britain. Finally, three days before he died, July 26, 1833, slavery was finally outlawed in the British colonies. He was well enough and alert enough to hear the news with his own two ears. Wilberforce's friend and sometimes pastor, William J., wrote a tribute with this accurate prophecy. His disinterested, self-denying, laborious, undeclining efforts in this cause of justice and humanity will call down the blessings of millions, and ages yet to come will glory in his memory. This was one man who decided he was going to get involved and use his God-given passion and gifts to see a deplorable evil eradicated from his culture. He He didn't stick with simply letting it be enough to tell his neighbors about Jesus. That's that's, that's absolutely crucial. He wrote books on the Christian faith that are still read today. More than that, he, he wanted to be salt and light in the world around him. He realized that God wanted him to be involved. And I believe that it's God's calling for us as well. God's calling us to be salt and light in this world around us. God calls us to impact our community and beyond for the cause of Christ. How are you going to do that? What's God calling you today to do? In what ways are you going to step out from the sidelines and get a little muddy, get a little sweaty, get a little banged up, so that the world may know the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the example of men and women like William Wilberforce, people who have chosen not to take the easy road, the safe road, but the road less traveled, the one that is, in a lot of ways, fraught with peril, People who will mock us, reject us, ridicule us. Those who maybe would take advantage of us and abuse generosity and sacrifice that we're willing to make. The fear of rejection, the possibility of abandonment, 
All those things are risks that we take when we choose to step out and be salt and light. At every one of us, your word says, need to be that in our culture. We need to have an influence on this world around us. So God, we pray this morning that we would have eyes to see and hearts to receive your calling for us. Some of it is very clear based on Scripture, our family, our friends, the ones around us. But Lord, if you're causing us to step back, maybe you're calling someone to get, get involved in our government. Maybe you're calling for someone to be, be even, even more involved in the community this morning by volunteering, by plugging into one of these organizations that we support and giving of their time and their finances and their energy. Lord, may we be sensitive to what you want us to do in the cause of taking the gospel to a world who so desperately needs to hear it. May we be salt and light. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.